what the Lord is doing in your life. And uh, thank you for this, Steve. Good evening, church. Oh, it's good to be here. I enjoy coming to CRBC whenever I can. Uh, my name is David Robles, as he said. Uh, I am the son of Ron and Chris Robles. I grew up in this church uh, when I was about 10 years old until I went to college. And today I am on here behalf of the Akron Fossil and Science Center. We're going to see if this is going to work today. Okay. There's no sound. Center. We started in 2005. Uh, it is a science ministry that is helping people understand creation science in the world. Uh, in 2016, we revamped our entire facility. We have an uh, outdoor play area. We have an indoor science center. Uh, within the science center, there are a lot of different exhibits you get to see there. Uh, and the first part of the uh, just overview here is understanding, why is this not? Okay. We have two branches in the Akron Fossil and Science Center. We have the Creation Education Branch and the Community Education Branch. And they are separate for a reason, uh, but they do teach good, legitimate science through both branches. The Creation Education Museum itself is Ohio's only creation museum. The one that's bigger isn't actually in Kentucky, so we get to take Ohio. And it is uh, 25 exhibits through a self-guided tour, through, also through an audio tour that we have just completed. The Creation Education Museum has about 25 different exhibits, like where do dinosaurs come from and how are fossils really made. There is also exhibits for an outdoor play park. It's about two acres. It has a 200-foot zip line. It has a 60-foot slide, and it has helicopter swings uh, on the playground for anyone to enjoy. So kids really do enjoy that when the warmer weather is cooperating. Uh, inside, we have programs like the replica fossil making, where we get to give you the ability to cast a fossil and take it home as a souvenir. We also have animal exhibits. Come on. There we go. Animal exhibits that you can hold real animals. Did I go too far? Okay, what I'm seeing there is not what I'm seeing there. There we go. The interactive animal exhibits, we have animals that are available for you to play around with and to learn about. We also have many other programs at AFSC, and they have uh, the most popular one right now is called Super Science Saturday. It's uh, every third Saturday of the month throughout the year. We have a kindergarten through sixth grade uh, exploration of science, different topics, including uh, marvelous moons, creature feature, and toy technology. Right, this is going a little bit slow. We also have themed birthday parties. You can bring your kids to the Akron Fossil and Science Center for birthday parties. This is just not clicking through. All right. Different themes for them. Kids really do enjoy to learn about uh, science through different exploration activities and hands-on uh, experiments. We have summer camps. Summer camps are available during the summer and they are through kindergarten through sixth grade. They're for a half day 
And you get to do a lot of outdoor exploration uh, through our outdoor play park. It is the biggest attended event we have, and it sells out very, very quickly. We also have the speaker series. This is a quarterly uh, lecture series we host at the Akron Fossil and Science Center. And we have different topics from radiometric dating to uh, fossil expeditions. And that is once every quarter. It's on our website. We also have the homeschool curriculums. This goes year round. Homeschool groups come to us from all over the state and get to have uh, Simply STEAM and Simply Science Studies. Uh, they, have, uh, they teach STEAM education, which is science, technology, engineering, art, and math. We have classes ranging from kindergarten all the way through high school. So if, you're, uh, if your home doesn't have the facilities for a laboratory or things of that nature, you could bring them to Akron Fossil and Science Center, and we can uh, show the kids how to go through and do these courses. And we have a lot of fun with that, and it is, again, year-round. Uh, we always are running out of room, which is the greatest problem to have. Uh, now, Akron Fossil and Science Center also hosts auctions and fundraisers throughout the year. Uh, we have spaghetti dinners that we host. We have murder mysteries, outdoor carnivals. And they help us with the community, because the community actually donates a lot of things that we can raffle off, such as prizes to uh, sporting events and vacations and so forth. The future goals of the facility. Now, we want to expand the facility. We want to do a lot of things with Akron Fossil and Science Center. So we are looking to uh, continue the work that we are doing already. We want to upgrade our facilities by updating the exterior and to get a new parking lot. And we also want to overhaul the entire play park and expand the grounds. Now, the Akron Fossil and Science Center creation education side is where I want to touch on tonight. Now, before I can talk about what creation science is, for those of you that are not aware, we have to talk about what science is. Now, in 2009, a group of scientists got together and they created a definition for science. Science is the pursuit and application of knowledge and understanding of the natural and social world following a systematic methodology based on evidence. Those two highlighted words are very important. Systematic methodology, a repeatable, testable process based on evidence. That is what science is. Now, there are two main branches of evidence for science. We have empirical science, which is the observational science. Things you can test, you can repeat, and include a result on. We have the historical version of science, which is eyewitness accounts of things we haven't observed currently, but we could look back in the past and see records of that. Now, these two kinds of evidence don't really give us an understanding for what is important when it comes to origins. We don't understand origins through these branches of science. What we need is we need what's called a worldview. To be able to understand the origins of the universe, the elements, planets and stars, animals, mankind, life, where did all these kings come from? How do we understand, how do we know what that is? Well, we need what's called a worldview. A worldview is a presupposition or a belief. It's a lens in which you look through to understand the world around you. And it affects everything you do. It affects your behavior, your values, even the culture of today. Now, for the worldview, you do need to start with the final authority. 
Now, for the Christian, this is our final authority. It's the Bible. It is our final authority in all matters of faith and practice. And it doesn't mean we're ignorant of the world. We don't put blinders on and just read the Bible and understand it. If we did that, we couldn't have lights, a sound system, airplanes. It just means that we focus everything we see through the Bible as a lens for a worldview. Now, the opposite of that is going to be based upon man's own opinion. The alternative is dependent upon man's reasoning, inference, speculation. And one of the philosophies this birth was the idea of naturalism. Naturalism is the idea that there is no supernatural element. Everything that happens is seen and heard and understood by science. That there's nothing supernatural about that. Now, this took hold about the late 1600s, where we get a gentleman by the name of James... Oh, no, sorry. Uh, the Bible warns us in uh, Timothy, where Paul writes to Timothy, he says, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so called. This was written way before we started to get into this evolutionary mindset. This is oppositions of science, things that are opposed to science, but falsely called science. Let's take a look how this works out in the world. The term science has been hijacked in the last 170 years. It's become synonymous with the idea of evolution. When you are on the media, social media, TV, whatever you're listening to, when you hear the word science from a secular source, they are likely meaning evolution. They don't actually mean the science we've been talking about so far. Let's, talk, let's listen to what Neil deGrasse Tyson says about the difference between religion and science. You feel strongly about your religious philosophies. I will have nothing to say about it unless you want to change the curriculum in a science classroom. And I would ask you, I won't fight you, I will ask you, why? There's no tradition of scientists knocking down the Sunday school door, telling the preacher what to teach. That has never happened. Atheists don't even do that. There's no scientists or atheists picketing outside of your church, say, or synagogue, or, or, or mosque. That might not necessarily be true. There is no such tradition. So what is the motivation to try to take a religious philosophy and influence what goes on in science? You can get up enough people to influence school boards, Okay. Again, I'm an educator, so I'm here to tell you the consequence of that. If you substitute religious philosophy for science, there will be a generation of people who will not understand what science is. And they will be intellectually crippled from contributing to what the centuries have demonstrated to be the most efficient engine of economic growth that has ever been devised and that is innovations in science and technology. So you see, he, there he said that if you use religious philosophies and influence science, you can't do legitimate science. This is one of the exhibits in our museum, and we have a question here that says, is the assumption of evolution necessary to do science? We have to assume evolution existed to actually do science. Well, let's answer that question by looking at the history of scientists. This is just a very brief list that's going to talk about the different science uh, leaders we had in the past that founded the fields of science we have today. We have Johannes Kepler, Isaac Newton, Robert Boyle, William Kirby, 
Clark Maxwell, Louis Pasteur, Francis Bacon, and so on. These are just a very slim few. All these people had in common, they feared God. They believed that God created the universe, and they used that religious philosophy to influence how they did science. They did, they did wonderful contributions to science. So Neil deGrasse Tyson is, is missing that mark. Now, <coughs> the Bible also, or sorry, we have in, uh, this quote here. In fact, over the last 100 years, almost all of biology has proceeded independent of evolution, except evolutionary biology itself. Molecular biology, biochemistry, physiology, all of them have not taken evolution into account at all. And that's from the Harvard Medical School. The Bible has something to say here in 2 Peter 3 through, 3 through 7. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers. There are people that actually scoff at this book. And they will say, they're all walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. That phrase right there, all things continue as they were, that is the scientific term uniformitarianism. Basically, everything you see now is how it happened always. They are willingly ignorant of that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So they are willingly ignorant of the creation of the flood and the coming judgment. That means they know about this, they just choose not to believe that. This is James Hutton. He wrote a book called The Theory of the Earth, and he is a naturalist. He said in this book, the past history of our globe must be explained by what can be seen to be happening now. No powers are to be employed that are not natural to the globe, no action to be admitted, except those of which we know the principle. Now, his book influenced the writing of another book written by a, not a scientist, but a lawyer. His name was Sir Charles Lyell. Come on. There we go. Charles Lyell, in his book, said the present is the key to the past. He went right along with that. He also said in another book that he wanted to free the science from Moses. He wanted to take science out of Genesis and keep it to himself and not include the Bible at all. Now, this man influenced another man that was very important, and his name was Sir Charles Darwin. Everything in nature is the result of fixed laws, he said in his book, In the Origin of Species. These three men helped usher in what is now known as the theory of evolution. That's a tricky word, though. What is evolution? Most people can't give you a good definition on that because there are six definitions on it. Let's kind of go through and break them down a little bit, understand what they mean. We have cosmic evolution. This is the Big Bang Theory, time, space, matter, Radiation and gravity all come into effect by chance. Elemental evolution is the higher order elements. From hydrogen and helium, we get the entire periodic table from those two elements. Stellar evolution says the gases and matter formed stars and planets through gravity. Organic evolution says that life emerges from non-organic matter. We have macroevolution, which is that transitions from one kind of animal or object or organism to another by mutation, and then we have microevolution. Now this one happens, we don't like the name, it's adaptation over time forming new species. This happens all the time. We see that happen in any part of the world, any plants, animals, we see that happening. 
what they do is they use this microevolution example to try and prove the other five that are not observable. That's the problem, is they use the lump it all term with evolution, but they have to define themselves. Now, the evolutionary timeline looks a little bit like this. This is a very simple breakdown, but 13.7 years, billion years ago, that was the Big Bang. 4.6 billion years ago, the Earth forms. Life begins in a very primordial kind of uh, fashion 3.6 billion years ago. You jump all the way to 750 million years ago and you have protozoa, the first single-celled organism. Dinosaurs at 250 million years ago and then as humans we come on the scene, modern humans 10,000 years ago. That's the evolutionary timeline based upon what they have done with their studies. Now in Ohio, in 2018, the Board of Education put together this document to have teachers teach their students that Earth is approximately 4.6 billion years old. Earth history is based on observations of the geologic record. We'll get back to that in a minute. And the, process, and the understanding that processes observed at present day are similar to those things in the past uniformitarianism, just as the Bible predicted. Nothing new under the sun. This is the geologic, geologic record they talked about, or the geologic column. This is a proposed order of strata of layers of rock where there are fossils inside. And this is what they use to date the Earth. This is what they use to date all the fossils, all the rocks. They use a bunch of different terms like radiometric dating, but they come back to this every single time. Now, this is based on circular reasoning. How is that? Well, you have a layer of rock, and they want to know how old it is. They say, okay, look for the index fossil inside that. That'll tell you how old it is. But if you have a fossil, they say, well, what kind of rock was it buried in? Well, that'll tell you how old it is. It's circular reasoning. If the rocks date the fossils, and the fossils date the rocks. This is a Newsflare article from a YouTube video about a discovery of a fossilized crab, and it says, it, the fossil, is dated by the age of the rock it is found in. I use that information to date it. It's not very specific, just a range. And here are living fossils. Living fossils are fossils we have today, and we see the exact same thing in nature that has not been changed. I found this at the Field Museum where a lady told me that this fossil was 140 million years old. This is the ginkgo leaf. It, she plucked those five examples on the right about a week before I came. I said, well, how come they haven't changed in 140 million years? And she said, well, that's a good question. Maybe the conditions were just right, and it didn't need to change at all during that entire time, which, by the way, goes through multiple extinction-level events, according to them. So this is the evolutionary theory, in a nutshell. Now, to get that out of the way, we're talking about creation science. We're going to show the difference between evolution and creation science. What is creation science? Well, creation science is the model of origins as detailed in the Bible that implies a special creative act by an intelligent designer. It was perfect when it was completed in the six days. It asserts that the ability to reproduce after each kind is the process of conservation and adaptation that was built into every creature. That is creation science in a nutshell. Let's take, let's take a little bit of a journey through here. We're going to talk about the three types of understanding you need when you're looking at creation science. First, you have to understand that Genesis is an historical book. It's perfect history. And understanding that science will always confirm scripture, and then a careful and honest consideration of the evidence based upon God's word. We're going to take a little journey today, after we get through this, 
For in six days, the Bible says, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. God wrote that on the top with his finger, and he doesn't stutter. Jesus, when talking to the Pharisees, said, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and the twain shall be one flesh. That's marriage. That's Adam and Eve from the beginning in the sixth day. Well, if we take Adam and we go all the way through the genealogies, we can actually add up exactly how much time has passed. And since we know some of the dates from history of these other men that are on this list, we can go back and we can see there's about 6,000 years of total human history on the planet, which is very different than the evolutionary time frame. Here's the Genesis timeline in contrast. We start with the creation week about 6,000 years ago. We have Noah's flood 4,400 years ago. We have the Tower of Babel 4,200 years ago. Abram is called, called out of the Ur of the Chaldees 3,800 years ago. And then Joseph dies at the end of the book in Genesis at 3,500 years ago. That's a very different timeline we're working with than the evolutionary time frame. Now there are two main branches of evidence we want to look at today. We're going to look at godly design and global flood. If the Bible is true, if Genesis is true, and there was a creator, and he created the earth in six days, and there was a global flood to judge sin, which they said they're willingly ignorant of, we should have some evidence. So let's look at some evidence of design. What is design? Design is the purposeful arrangement of parts, and as the number of parts increases, we we are confident in the conclusion of design. So starting off, we're going to talk about the design for biology. Let's start with us. It's a good place to start. Every person in here has 32 trillion cells in your body. And in, that, in each cell is DNA. That DNA has 3.5 billion letters of code that is unique to each and every person. It teaches your body how to grow, how to repair itself, how to mature. All the DNA in your body, though, could fit in a tablespoon. And stretched out, it can go from Earth to the moon and back 1,500 times. It's a very compact molecule. Now, the DNA, what it does is it creates amino acids. was one of its jobs. It's red in four different dimensions. It's red forwards, backwards. When it's combined and shifted in your body, it's red that way. And then over time, it's red differently again. Uh, Would you conclude that DNA happened by chance, or there was a creative designer behind it. Let's take a little bit of a deeper look into just how DNA causes your cells to divide. These are tiny molecular machines, and they are doing this inside your body right now. To understand why, we have to zoom out. Every day in an adult human body, 50 to 70 billion of your cells die. Either they're stressed or damaged or just old. But this is normal. In fact, it's called programmed cell death. But to make up for all these lost cells, right now, billions of your cells are dividing, essentially creating new cells. And that process of cell division, also called mitosis, well, it requires an army of tiny molecular machines. So let's take a closer look. DNA is a good place to start, the double helix molecule we always talk about. This is a scientifically accurate depiction of DNA created by Drew Barry at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research. 
If you unwind the two strands, you can see that each has a sugar phosphate backbone connected to the sequence of nucleic acid base pairs, known by the letters A, T, G, and C. Now the strands run in opposite directions, which is important when you go to copy DNA. Copying DNA is one of the first steps in cell division. Here, the two strands of DNA are being unwound and separated by the tiny blue molecular machine called helicase. Helicase literally spins as fast as a jet engine. The strand of DNA on the right has its complementary strand assembled continuously, but the other strand is more complicated because it runs in the opposite direction. So it must be looped out with its complementary strand assembled in reverse, section by section. At the end of this process, you have two identical DNA molecules, each one a few centimeters long, but just a couple nanometers wide. So to prevent the DNA from becoming a tangled mess, it is wrapped around proteins called histones, forming a nucleosome. These nucleosomes are bundled together into a fiber known as chromatin, which is further looped and coiled to form a chromosome, one of the largest molecular structures in your body. You can actually see chromosomes under a microscope in dividing cells. Only then do they take on their characteristic shape. Otherwise, the DNA is more strewn inside the nucleus. The process of dividing a cell takes around an hour in mammals, so this footage is from a time lapse. You can see how the chromosomes line up on the equator of the cell. Now when everything is right, they are pulled apart into the two new daughter cells, each one containing an identical copy of DNA. Now as simple as this looks, the process is incredibly complicated and requires even more fascinating molecular machines to accomplish it. So let's look at a single chromosome. One chromosome consists of two sausage-shaped chromatids containing the identical copies of DNA made earlier. Each chromatid is attached to microtubule fibers, which guide and help align them in the correct position. The microtubules are connected to the chromatid at the kinetochore, here colored red. The kinetochore consists of hundreds of different proteins working together to achieve multiple objectives. In fact, it's one of the most sophisticated molecular mechanisms inside your body. The kinetochore is central to the successful separation of the chromatids. It creates a dynamic connection between the chromosome and the microtubules. For a reason no one's yet been able to figure out, the microtubules are constantly being built at one end and deconstructed at the other. While the chromosome is still getting ready, the kinetochore sends out a chemical stop signal to the rest of the cell, shown here by the red molecules, basically saying this chromosome is not yet ready to divide. The kinetochore also mechanically senses tension. When the tension is just right and the position and attachment are correct, all the proteins get ready, shown here by turning green. At this point, the stop signal broadcasting system is not switched off. Instead, it is literally carried away from the kinetochore down the microtubules by a dynein motor. That's the walking guy. This is really what it looks like. It has long legs so it can avoid obstacles and step over the kinesins, molecular motors that walk in the opposite direction. 
Personally, I'm astounded by these tiny molecular machines, how they're able to routinely and faithfully execute their functions billions of times over inside your body at this exact instant. I'm also amazed by the scientists who were able to work out how this happens in such detail that we could create realistic depictions of them, like you saw in the animations in the... Hey, just gonna cut off, come off there real quick. He was thanking a lot of different people and saying how he's amazed about the scientists and about how these micro-machines in your body actually work. He never gives any credit to God. In Psalm 139, the psalmist says, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and marvelous are thy works. It says later, thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written. This was written well before we got into the last century where we discovered DNA for the first time. And we talked about, we talked about DNA right here. In thy book, all my members were written, which in continuous were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. That is the description of DNA. Let's talk about some other evidences in biology. Here's a termite. What do termites eat? Wood. Guess what they can't digest? Wood. So they need a Pro, uh, protist, a symbiotic protist that lives in their gut to actually break down the cell walls. And in that protist, is there a, a, there's another bacteria that actually helps digestion of the animal. So all three of those critters need to get together at the same time. This is showing interdependence. We also have the evidence for the bombardier beetle. The African bombardier beetle is a fun creature. It has a defense mechanism where it has two sacks of chemicals in its body that when combined in air, they explode at the temperature of boiling water. Now we say that they came to this conclusion through God's design. It was not something that took long times, a long time, but evolutionists don't buy that. Evolutionists say that this is actually an example of survival of the fittest, and that random mutations over many years resulted in this mechanism. This, this flies in the face of logic and reason. Let's take a look at the Woodpecker. The woodpecker is an amazing marvel of engineering. From the beak to the brain, the bill and the tongue, everything about this bird is super designed. It has a tongue like no other bird, starts at the left nostril, goes over their head, back behind their throat, and out their mouth. It cushions their brain from the G load they have whenever they hit the tree, because they hit its 1,200 Gs. At 100 Gs, humans have concussions. At 1,200 Gs, the woodpecker is fine, and it does this 22 times per, per second it actually blinks, and to refocus its, it refocus its strike every time, it closes its eyes so it doesn't burst the eyes out of the eye socket for that much of a G-load. How about giraffe's blood pressure? Giraffes are very tall animals. They need a strong heart to pump all that blood. But they have a problem. When they bend their head over to get a drink of water, if the gravity plus the blood pressure was going to continue the blood flow at the same rate, it would burst their brain. When they pick their head up to run away from a predator, they would get lightheaded and fall over and die if the blood wasn't shunted properly through the lock channels in their neck. This is a perfectly designed creature. Next in design, we have evidence from cosmology, from the stars and planets. Now, Earth is a very, very special planet. There is no other planet like Earth, and we have discovered what's called the Goldilocks zone. It is a zone of habitability that allows us to host complex life on this planet. From the type of star, to the moon orbiting, to the crust of the planet, to the liquid water we find nowhere else but Earth, 
All of this combines for a very special planet that God has designed. Now, in uh, December, in 1995, the Hubble telescope was pointed at a dark spot in the sky. They thought there might have been no stars there. So for 10 days, it looked at this spot, and it came back with these images. We couldn't see them with the naked eye or telescopes, but they saw that after 10 days of exposure. Now, all the bright spots there, those are not stars. Those are galaxies. Now, estimations of the visible universe have about 100 to 200, sorry, about 100 to 200 billion galaxies. And each galaxy has about 100 to 400 billion stars. So many stars, in fact, that each one of us could own 40 trillion to ourselves. Now, what does the Bible have to say about stars? Well, it says that he telleth the number of the stars. He calleth them all by their names. He knows that many names. I don't know that many names. I don't think any person in the world could ever know that many names. But he knows them all. He also made them in just a footnote. You said he made the stars also. Laws of the universe. For a law, there must be a lawgiver. We have laws like the law of gravity, law of attraction, law of planetary motion and relativity. These are universal laws we found through physics. And here's a quote. Note that without the existence of such universal laws, we could not make much headway in astronomy. The consistency of the laws of nature gives us enormous power to understand distant objects without traveling to them. If they had different laws in different regions of space, we would never understand space as we do now. These laws are universal, and they are made by universal being. The Bible says, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man thou, thou art mindful of him, and the son of man thou visitest him? We have that many galaxies, that many stars and planets out there, and God is interested in us. God is interested in us so much that he made us special. We also have evidence from human design. We make things. So how does, that, how does that work out with design for us? Well, here's inherent design. You can look at any one of these pictures and you can spot the designed object. It's an arrowhead. We know looking at an arrowhead will give us a tool. We know it was designed by someone for a particular purpose. It was not made by erosion. Here is a London hammer. This was found in 1939 in London, Texas. It is a hammer in concretion. And they date this concretion to about 140 million years ago, when they said humans didn't even exist. But in this hammer, on the right-hand side, if you can see it, there's a little scratch. It, it showed the iron underneath that black casing. That iron is 99% pure. We cannot make that in today's atmosphere. And it hasn't rusted in 60 years. Now, the word natural selection is a word that Darwin threw around in his book, and he said that's how survival of the fittest and mutations cause the species to make new, new kinds of life. Well, this is better understood through the idea of quality control in industry. If anyone's in engineering or industry, they know that you're not making something brand new, you are refining what is already there, and it takes intelligence, it takes design, and it takes study to do so. We also have complexity in design. This is an abacus. Kids, this is the first adding machine. Now, we've come a long way since then. We have made computers. The abacus was a computer program, basically, but we have modern-day computers. Both of them are computational devices, 
but they took a long time with much research, much study, engineering, and intelligence to come to the modern day computer. Now, pretty much everyone's going to go home today to a house or an apartment or some kind of dwelling, and you look at this house and you go, I understand that someone built that. A tornado didn't go through Home Depot and make that. The Bible also says this. It says in Hebrews, For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. Let's take a look now at the other section, the global flood. Is there evidence for a global flood? If God put a flood across this entire world to judge sin, is there evidence of it? I think there is. Let's start off with the evidence from geology. Study of rocks. Now, all across the world, there are canyons, massive craters in the ground with many layers, with rivers running through the bottom of them. But how did they form? Did they form through a slow, gradual process of long periods of time with a small river cutting them out through erosion? Or did they happen in a rapid process through a short amount of time with a lot of water? Let's look at the evidence. In canyon layers, if these layers were formed rapidly, we should see even sedimentary lines with no erosion, clean dividing lines. However, over long periods of time, there should be erosion that happens before the next layer gets put down. We see no evidence of this. We also have barbed or warped canyons. They are canyons that have rock that is bent and curled. It's really hard to bend rock. You have to do it when it's soft before it actually hardens. We have examples of barbed canyons all over the world. There's further ev evidence from raindrops, ripple formations, and animal tracks. How long do they last in the mud? Well, we've got them actually preserved in stone. It didn't take a long time for these to become stone testaments to the history of our planet. Polystrate fossils. Now, polystrate means many layers. It's a fossil that is going through many layers of sediment. Sometimes these are trees. Sometimes they're even running upside down through these layers. And they're found all over the planet. These rocks, these trees didn't stay upright, upside down, living, and die slowly as rocks were piled up. They happened very rapidly. Now this is a fun experiment. Kids, you want to do this at home? Get a jar, fill it with mud, sand, rocks, dirt, different kinds. Put water in it, leave a little air at the top, cap it, and then shake it up. Set it down, five minutes later come back. You're going to see that all the layers formed into new layers just by the gravity and the water. You can, you can try that at home. It's called a hydrologic sorting. Evidence for the flood number two, we have evidence from fossils. This is one of the favorite parts of the fossil museum. Now, these are pictures from the Field Museum in Chicago. That's Titanosaur on the left, that's Maximo the Titanosaur, and that's Sue, the largest T-Rex we've ever found, because a tank. What do fossils teach us? Well, fossil teaches us that, from the Latin word, fossils meaning having dug up. Fossils are just buried creatures where the sediment and minerals have gotten into the ground and exchanged their material for a sedimentary casting of the structure. Well, how do fossils form? Do they form slowly after the animal dies and falls in water and takes millions of years to happen, or does it happen rapidly? We think it happens rapidly. With the proper conditions, this is how fossils form. For step one, the creature is killed and rapidly buried by deposits of sediment, volcanic ash, silt, and mud. Step two, the, uh, the creature is buried, 
sealing it from scavenging and, from, and preserving it from decay. Over time, the sedimentary minerals from water seep down and exchange the material of the creature to the casting. And then over time, erosion happens, and we start to dig and we find fossils in the ground to study them. That is how fossilization works. Now, here's some examples of how fast fossilization can occur. We've got a fish eating another fish. We've got insects mating. We have a school of fish swimming and an ichthyosaur giving birth. This does not take a long period of time to happen. They can do it very rapidly. Now, in the fossil record, there is a lot of different fossils you can look at. Uh, mainly, the 95% of the fossil record is just invertebrate shellfish. You can find clams and mollusks even on Mount Everest. Uh, but the very, very, very small percentage is the invertebrate animals we see, humans, dinosaurs, and things of that nature. It's a very small part of the fossil record. Now this is pictures of red blood cells, collagen, and tissue found in dinosaur fossils that have not decayed, have not eroded. We still can find evidence of them and study them. Take a look at this particular uh, video about a, a triceratops horn that was found. On the bench. Mark Armitage was Mark our microscopist working on this. And Mark then took a piece of the decalcified the horn okay. and put it under a microscope. See the fibrous material there? That's part of the composition of the bone matrix itself. But what's really of interest... Okay, let's try that again. On the bench. On the bench. Mark Armitage, Mark was, our Armitage was our microscopist. Sorry. There is a fibrous tissue they found in the triceratops horn after they dug it up. They could actually see live dinosaur tissue. It hadn't decayed. Now, we also have petrification. Petrification is an example of fossilization, but it's when things turn to stone. Now, here is a picture of a dog. This is called Stucky the dog. He was found in a chestnut tree in Georgia, 28 feet up. When, the, when they uh, brought down the tree, they found this dog was stuck inside. He had chased some animal up the tree, got stuck in, and petrified, turned to solid stone. We also have a cowboy boot with a fossilized or petrified foot inside it. The boot was made in the 1950s, and we were able to CT scan this and find that this was a regular human bone, a human foot in the boot, but the boot didn't get petrified. There's an example of a cowboy hat with some bullet holes in it. We have teddy bears that's actually at our museum. And in England, they had this uh, experimental kind of a tourist attraction where they hung these objects underneath the rainfall and these are petrified in about two weeks. And you can sell them as tourist attractions. What other evidence we have for the flood? We have evidence from recent human history. Mount St. Helens is a good place to start. In 1980, on May 18th, Mount St. Helens exploded. It made the news and it was not a very big volcano, but it certainly uh, could fool some people, and it was pretty massive. It took 400 meters off of the top of Mount St. Helens, and that became a mudslide that washed down and created a valley in the resulting uh, bottom of the structure of the mountain. Now, that valley is actually called a little Grand Canyon. You can see here the many layers that go through. They're much smaller than the Grand Canyons, but this was just one volcano. There were multiple volcanoes and earthquakes going on during the flood. 
Now, this valley is about 1,000 feet wide and over 140 feet deep. It was carved in about two hours' time. We can see here how deep that valley is. That did not take any amount of time. It took just less than a day to carve that out. Now, the other part of what happened at Mount St. Helens is it took a blast that from the shockwave of the volcano and ripped all the trees from the forest down, and it formed into a floating log mat in Spirit Lake. The log, is, the log mat is still there today. You can see how many logs there are, people sitting on them talking. Now, over time, they actually get waterlogged, and they start to sink down, and they go into the bottom of the Spirit Lake, and they come upright because they've now lost their buoyancy. There are about 20,000 trees down there that have been rooted in the ground, and if that lake was dried up today, you would see what's called a petrified forest. There are petrified forests all over the world. They did not take a long time to form. They can form through some kind of catastrophe. And just another note on this one, as the foliage and the leaves and the organic material break off from the logs, they come down and they form peat at the bottom, which is actually turning into coal right now. Coal does not take a long time to form. But let's talk about the real reason that we're talking about this, that I'm up here today, that I'm bringing this to you. Why does this matter? Why is this important? Well, it's important for the first reason that we look at our starting point. Our starting point is either going to be God's word, which is a biblical worldview, or man's word, which is a secular worldview. We've already discussed how Genesis shows us the creation, which is evidenced by design, and we have the flood showing a catastrophe. These two things bring us together to understand that the Bible is true. We have evidence of that. Isaac Newton said that science was a means to think God's thoughts after him. That's why he did science. The Bible says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith has substance, it has evidence. People have dismissed faith in saying that it's blindly believing something that you have no evidence for. Well, we can practice faith in everyday life, and everyone does this. Look at a chair. We have the design of a chair, which shows the substance of it. We have the evidence of the track record of sitting down in chairs all our lives. We understand the structure, but we sit down without even testing the chair. That's faith. That's biblical faith you're trusting in right now to hold you up from the ground. But we don't, have, we don't preach faith on chairs. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. The earth did not make itself. The universe didn't make itself. God created everything. The Bible also says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God has all this creation for us to look at, and that tells us, we can see his power, we can see the Trinity, we can see him working, we can see him moving through the things which he made. But who made this? Who is this God? Colossians answers this. He says, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, Jesus Christ, in whom, Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created. Jesus Christ is the creator. He created all things. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Jesus Christ came to this earth as a man. 
He was God incarnate. He was the creator of the universe. And he came down to this earth. He became human flesh. And he did it for one reason. He did it to save us from our sins. This is the entire reason we, entire reason we study creation science. There's no other reason to it but the gospel. Because the creator of the universe, no matter how, how powerful he was, he stooped down to become a human to save you. He made you. He wants you in a relationship with you. And that is the reason we study creation science. I want to thank you for attending uh, today and coming out here. This is from the Akron Fossil and Science Center. I have a table in the back. But I want to thank you again for having me out. And we look forward to seeing you guys at the museum. Pastor? Amen. Thank you, David. Is your head spinning? <laughs> Feel a little overwhelmed? Does it lead you to praise God, your creator? With all the, the things that we saw and witnessed tonight and the complexity and the, just the overwhelming nature of it, to think that God cares about little old me, that sent his son to shed his blood, die on the cross for me, is just mind-boggling. And uh, so I thank you that for the time and effort and investment you, you've put into this, David. Uh, Mom and Dad, did he do good? Yeah, I thought he did phenomenal. And I'm very, very impressed with what, what God is doing in uh, David's life. I was mentioned in my Sunday school class this morning, we were talking about taking time to, to see God in creation and to glorify him and to praise him for that. And I had mentioned that I was hunting with my oldest son, Tyler, in southern New Mexico, and we were about 10,000 feet, and I was finding seashells at 10,000 feet, and thinking, wow, I wonder how those got here. <laughs> and we had a good chuckle because, again, just uh, you don't have to look hard to see evidence of God's creation, his love, the flood, all these sort of things, and yet our world tries to erase all of that and take God out of it. And as believers, I guess a question that is going around through my mind, hopefully going around through your mind, is, as David kind of concluded things with that, is so what do we do about this? Uh, Lord, what do you want me to do personally based on what I've heard tonight? I guess that's the invitation, really, is, Lord, how do I process this? What would you have me to do? How can I open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel? How can I say if I, and sometimes I realize we've been influenced by this thought, if you're like me, who went to a public education all through high school and then a public undergrad and then a public grad school, uh, you're indoctrinated with so much that uh, it's so easy just to kind of infiltrate your thinking and we need to learn to be able to step back from that and say uh, God's word trumps everything. No matter what man says, God's word is true and no matter what I feel or what man may say, that's my basis. And when we put our basis in the word of God, it is unfailing. His principles, his promises are unfailing. The magnitude of his love and mercy and grace are beyond our ability to even comprehend. And so let's be faithful to share truth. Uh, we may think, well, I'm just not equipped to do that. I, I can't argue someone in to heaven. And I would say that's I get that. I think we're all there. But we can share truth. And the word of God, as David shared tonight in his presentation, is quick and it's powerful 
and it's sharper than a two-edged sword, able to pierce through the dividing center of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So let's just be faithful to share truth and let God do his work through his word to bring conviction and uh, be able and prepared and ready to share the hope that we have in an amazing Savior that created all of this. Man, that whole thing of chromosomes and DNA and, I mean, just mind-boggling and mind-blowing. And you think it's a funny little video game until they say it actually kind of looks like this. It's like, wow. And it's so, so minuscule, so tiny. But yet it's happening billions of times in every one of our lives. Well, let me ask you to bow your head. We will have prayer, and then I'm going to invite the ushers to, uh, to be prepared for the love offering. And, Sean, we're not going to sing an invitation. I'll just, we'll pray and, and uh, ask uh, in your, where you're sitting right now, what the Lord wants you to do with what you've heard tonight. And then just say, yes, Lord. Whatever it is you want me to do, say, get involved, be an advocate for, that's what I want to do. So, Father, we do thank you for uh, this work that's going, down, going on down in Akron. And we're thankful for how you've worked in David's life, how you've equipped him, you've given him this burden and this passion and uh, that's so well thought out and so well presented. And, Lord, uh, I pray that this would be the, the first of many opportunities that David gets to stand in a church and share the simple, glorious, overwhelming truths of what a great God we serve. And, Lord, that it would touch hearts, that it would uh, cause people to think and to reflect and uh, to make a decision that even though they don't understand everything, they're overwhelmed by the enormity of it all, that they can just do nothing but sit back and say, praise God for what a great God we serve. And, Lord, just simply walk out of here with a desire to know him more, to do more, to open our mouths boldly, to make known the mystery of the gospel, to share the truth and let the truth through the power of the Holy Spirit do his work in the lives of those that were around. Many have bought into a lie, Lord, and yet your word is so clear and so true and so simple. Lord, help us not to be so intimidated and afraid that uh, we don't think we can compete against those who know so much about very complex things, but in reality know so little. And so, Father, again, show us what it is that we are to do individually, and Lord, help us to take that step of faith, to act, as we spoke even this morning, act on what we know to be true and not hold back on the doubt. Father, again, we love you. We ask your blessing upon this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Ushers, if you could come forward. This is the love offering that will be...